Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York for the time being, but preparing yet again for another trip to beautiful, scenic, bucolic, downtown Secaucus, New Jersey, where I will be competing in something called the Silver Legacy Circuit event. I don't even know where they're coming up with these names at this point, but the games on WSOP.com are not getting easier. They are tough. There is still the the uh, occasional infrequent confrontation against someone who's totally clueless. But compared with this time last year, uh, the games are much, much tougher. But you might say, but Clayton, then why are you going? And the reason is because I want to play licensed, legal, regulated poker. Also, I've been working like crazy on my game, studying all of the uh, videos on Tournament Poker Edge, rereading some Andrew Brokus books, Play Optimal Poker, Volume 1 and 2, and just really putting in a lot of effort. So even though I think there are probably softer games for me to find, especially when it comes to the higher stakes buy-ins, like the $300 or $500 level, uh, I'm, I'm sure that I can find better games elsewhere but I'm going to play in a game where I may not even be plus EV because I like knowing that the games are legit. Now, by legit, that I do not mean that no one could possibly be colluding or cheating or using real-time assistance or anything else. But I just know that the, the site itself is safe and I like that. I know for a fact that the FBI is never going to come and shut it down. So <laughs> there's something to be said for that sort of peace of mind. Uh, also, there's something to be said for playing against tough competition. Uh, I've been playing a number of small stakes tournaments on ACR. And honestly, the games are pretty soft. I'm talking about like the $5 tournament, the $10 tournament. Uh, you don't really get too many sharks in those waters. Uh, and... You might make money that way, but you don't really improve. I need to try to apply some of the more high-level concepts that I've been learning from some of the study that I've been doing. I need to get into situations where I have to actually apply that knowledge. So I realize I may be taking the worst of it, or, or perhaps at some tables I might be break-even at best. But for me, the knowledge that everything is legit and 100% legal regulated and all that is worth a lot. So I will continue to go there even as the games have, uh, shall we say, dried up a bit. Uh, they do have some other incentives as well. They have a few tournaments with low rake or added prizes. So I'm looking forward to a weekend of battle in New Jersey and still trying to break through and battle my way to my first circuit ring so who knows maybe it'll happen this weekend but one thing i can guarantee is that i will report back to you 
Uh, I picked out a couple of hands from the most recent WSOP Europe, which was a while ago. Uh, I had never really watched the coverage of the WSOP Europe main event, and I, I've been very intrigued by a lot of the things that I've seen on some of the early episodes. But before I get to those hands, I wanted to share a couple of reviews we got. Uh, this one comes from a, an Apple user. This is on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Uh, his name is Wizlet It. I don't, I'm going to read it that way so that I'm not <laughs> saying anything profane. Uh, five stars. Spectacular. I really enjoy the content on this podcast. Clayton is very insightful and he has an aggressive style of playing. The podcast is funny and keeps me up with poker news, but stays on track with good strategy in many different tournament situations. The hand analysis is in-depth and accurate. I would definitely recommend this podcast to someone who's wanting to learn the thinking side of poker. Uh, this is one of my favorite reviews that we've ever gotten. So thank you, Whizzle It, it for <laughs> leaving us the uh, five-star review. And if you are a frequent listener and you've never left us a review, I would encourage you to please visit Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening if, if they have a review section, but particularly on Apple Podcasts, which used to be called iTunes. That is such a big help to us as we continue to climb the ranks of the ever-increasingly crowded poker podcast space. It is so helpful. I cannot emphasize enough how that is the single most important thing you can do if you want to say, hey, I really appreciate what you guys do, putting out this weekly free podcast with strategy and interviews and everything else. So if you are of a mind that you want to kind of give back to us for what the powers that be here at Tournament Poker Edge have done for you, uh, that is the best way to do it. So visit Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice five-star review. And we appreciate it so much. And maybe I'll even read your review on a future episode. Uh, what I want to discourage is uh, I, want, I want to make sure everybody out there understands. Like, I am not a TPE pro. I'm also not Tournament Poker Edge tech support. So lately, I've gotten a few tweets from some of you guys like, hey, I can't log into my account or uh, what happened? Where's my receipt from my payment this month? Uh, listen, guys, that is not my department. So don't tag me in, in those kind of tweets. Uh, I promise that our tech support team will get back to you if you just tweet uh, at Tournament Poker Edge rather than uh, contacting me directly for your tech support needs. It kind of makes me laugh because uh, one time I was actually taping a TV show on Mark Cuban's network, Access TV. There was a show called Gotham Comedy Live. And one time I had a spot on there where I was supposed to do a 10-minute comedy uh, set. And uh, the episode I was on, the host was uh, Billy Gardell, who, if you if you know the TV show Mike and Molly, he played Mike. So, uh, you know, I got a big TV star, sitcom star on stage. He's about to introduce me. And somebody in the audience, I'm standing in the wings, and somebody in the audience asked me for a drink refill. <laughs> like, hey, can I get another vodka soda? And I was like, uh, if you don't mind, I'm about to go uh, do a TV show right now. Uh, <laughs> it's just funny. Um, not to sound too Rodney Dangerfield about this, but sometimes I don't get any respect. All right, so let's get into a couple of these hands now, guys. Thank you for indulging me. 
There are two hands I want to get into, and they both come from day two of the World Series of Poker Europe main event 2019. So I had to dig up some old stuff. I, I don't know. I think I've just really been missing live poker. And now that it's March, I've been thinking a lot about the World Series of Poker, how usually this time in any normal year, by this time I would have all my flights booked and all of my hotels ready and I'd be already sort of counting the days until I could get out there for summer camp. And so I guess this time of year when the weather starts to break and you start to feel like maybe spring is almost here, for me that means two things. It means baseball season, which I look forward to so much, and of course the World Series of Poker, preparing for it, leading up to it, doing all my study, trying to get in shape, eat well, like all the things that we do to kind of get ready for that marathon. And at this point, at this moment, on March 18th, as I'm recording this, we don't know whether that WSOP is even happening or not this year. I mean, I think the smart money is on it happening, but maybe a, a shorter version, maybe starting a little bit later than usual. We just don't know. It feels like a waiting game and possibly like a logistical nightmare. Like, can we get the Rio? What's going on? Uh, all that kind of stuff. Maybe like governmental interference, like how many people are allowed to be in the convention center. All of these kind of hurdles basically have the poker world waiting to see whether the World Series of Poker will happen or will it be canceled for a second consecutive year. So because of that, perhaps I wanted to watch some footage of the WSOP and... I found this from day two of the European World Series of Poker main event, 2019. It's a pretty crazy table. You've got Sean Deeb, who is, in my opinion, one of the three or four best tournament players in the world. I'm not going to say anything about how I feel about his personality or some of the things that he does on Twitter, things like that. But as far as just pure skill, it's undeniable. This guy is an absolute beast, a true legend. And then you also have Anton Morgenstern, who has a huge resume of all of his tournament successes over the years and all of the final tables and titles and accolades that he has received. I mean, it's just, it, the list goes on and on. So you've got these two top-level elite pros luminaries, if you will. And then you've got the rest of the table, just an absolute bunch of no names. I mean, I Googled the players that are stuck at this table for day two of their European main event. And a lot of them have no caches or one lifetime cash uh, of like $800. And they're sitting there playing in the World Series of Poker Europe against two absolute beasts. So it kind of creates the type of dynamic that you normally will not find in a $10,000 tournament. And that's what makes the main event so special. Now, I've never played the WSOPE at all. I've never played any events in that series and in any year. Uh, but now after watching this, this table where Sean Deeb <laughs> was sitting there with these guys that don't even know uh, kind of the basics... It made me want to uh, perhaps book a flight for the next WSOPE because although I would not be a favorite against Anton and Sean, 
I would certainly be a favorite over the competition that they faced at this table on day two. So if you find yourself at a table where, like Sean Deeb, you have almost nothing to worry about as far as your opponent's uh, skill level, I mean, save for Anton Morgenstern, you're just not worried about getting outplayed. So what kind of strategy would you employ if you felt like you were at a table in a 10K against basically what's probably a number of satellite winners, either online satellite winners or live satellite winners. Uh, Everybody wants to play the main event, and so apparently in Europe it's the same. So you will get quite a different field than what you might get in any other uh, high-stakes buy-in tournament. So, by the way, it's 10,000 euros. I think I said dollars before. Okay, so what adjustments should we make? Well, one thing I think that you should do is play more hands. Generally speaking, if your opponents are not as skilled as you, they will be making mistakes against you that you would not make against them. And so you have to be in the hand with those opponents in order to benefit from those mistakes. So that doesn't mean you should play every pot, but if you have a close decision... I think you should choose to enter the pot. And if it's not a close decision, you should still fold, of course. Uh, But yeah, I think you'll see even in one of the hands that I'm going to discuss that there's a spot where Deeb does something that would probably not be found on any solver or (laughs) poker book about how to play. Uh, But you can see why doing what he did may be profitable for him because of his skill advantage. So... You don't want to go too far with this because then you just end up being a loose player yourself uh, and then you might even become the fish at the table. But I'm saying when you are convinced that you are head and shoulders above the average level at your table, even one other pro anti Morgenstern notwithstanding, you might want to look for spots to open your game up a little bit more. And depending on how big your skill edge is, you can open it up that much more. So... That's one thing we'll see. And then the other thing I would recommend you try to do is be generally more aggressive. Uh, Satellite winners want to keep pots small. They don't want to take any chances. Uh, For them, it's really about making it to the next day of the multi-day tournament. They want to get their money's worth. They want to have a story. Maybe just min cashing in this thing would be so big for some of these players. You know, for example, if you came over from Poland... Right, because they play in Razvodov, right? So if you came over from Poland or another country where there's just really not a lot of money and you somehow managed to obtain 10,000 euros uh, worth of buy-in chips or maybe you won your satellite online or whatever, and if you if the min cash is 15,000 euros, that might be a year's salary or more where you're from. So you need to try to get inside your opponent's heads and figure out, how much a min cash means to them. You may find that adopting a super aggressive or hyper aggressive style is actually best against opponents like that because they will basically fold anything that's not the nuts under pressure. All right, so let's get into it. Here's hand number one. Uh, These hands are both going to come from the 1,500, 3,000 level There's also a 3,000 big blind ante. Uh, Play is nine-handed. So, yeah, right off the bat here, this first hand that I want to talk about, 
uh, a Hungarian player named Gergely Voros. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, but I'm trying. Uh, limps in under the gun with the ace of clubs, seven of clubs. All right, so let's talk about, right away about Gurgley's decision. Now, I'm not trying to, to pick on uh, this player or anyone, really. I just want you guys to not make these kinds of mistakes, okay? Now, if you're going to have a limping under-the-gun range, it's okay to limp sometimes if you're deep-stacked, and especially if you feel like it's unlikely that there's going to be a raise behind you. Um, you want to be able to mix in some limps with hands like aces and kings, right? Your two uh, big premium pairs. So because of that, you need to have some other hands in your range. I think it's good to have maybe the occasional limp with a hand like ace tray of hearts or ace five of diamonds, those kinds of hands. And But the point is that you're going to represent pocket aces when you're limping in with those hands. And those hands actually play well versus a continuing range overall. Now, I prefer the ace-5 or ace-tray suited as opposed to ace-7, even though hot and cold, ace-7 is actually a better hand. You're never going to make the wheel with that hand, which basically means there will be fewer semi-bluffing opportunities. So limping in under the gun with ace-medium suited is not recommended. Uh, you could maybe limp in sometimes with a hand like pocket fours, pocket fives. I, I prefer just folding those hands, but if you want to, if you want to go ahead, uh, especially at this table, I would absolutely fold small pairs because you're not going to get paid. You're going to end up out of position against Anton Morgenstern or something. It's just, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Also, Gurgly has on his immediate left, Sean Deeb. So limping under the gun. If Deeb knows that you're a weak player uh, and then he raises you, then he's going to try to isolate you with a wide range and then you're just going to end up playing a big pot from out of position with a medium strength to mediocre strength hand against one of the best players in the world. Do you think that's profitable? Because I don't. So just fold your ace seven. This is not a good limp by Gurgly Vures. Uh, so... And he's got 285,000 behind, so his M is about 28. Uh, Sean Deeb is next to act, and he's got the King of Hearts, 10 of Spades, and he's got 400,000 chips for an M of 40. So these guys are very deep stacked, okay? Gurgly's got almost 100 big blinds. Deeb has 130-ish. So it, it's, it's deep stack poker, right? But that's all the more reason to fold the A7 of clubs. The implied odds are not there. The reverse implied odds are there. There's just too good a chance that a better ace is going to show up in the pot in position against you, and it could end up costing you a ton of chips when you flop an ace to find out that you were beat. So this is a, a really bad risk-to-reward ratio for Verus here. So now Deeb with the King-10, I think he can raise here to isolate the limper, or he can just limp behind... Obviously, the book says to fold King-10 offsuit from early position, uh, but Sean Deeb, he's, at, he's feeling like a king at his table. He's not about to fold any two high cards, even from early position, because that's how big his skill edge is. Uh, obviously, the uh, GTO strategy would be to fold this hand at a nine-handed table in second position, but 
Deep decides to limp in. He's like, sure, you want to limp? I'll limp. We'll just play deep stack post-flop and my skill advantage will make back all the money I'm losing by playing such a weak hand from up front. Uh, so that's his theory there, I believe. A few folds and then in the cutoff, we have Stanislav Majedzel. He is a Polish amateur. He's got only 87,500 in his stack and he's got the ace seven offsuit ace of spades seven of diamonds and what should stanislav do most of us would just fold right you've got a raggedy ace x kind of hand um the first two players under the gun and under the gun plus one have entered the pot uh you definitely don't want to try to get involved against those guys especially because the limper could have a big pair um, Deeb could be, have anything because he's so tricky and, uh, I don't think you want to play a seven from the cutoff. So fine, Stanislav, if you want to play, you know, there's already 13,000 in the middle. You only have 87,000 in your stack. Uh, go ahead and play it. If you really, really want to, I don't recommend it, but if you want to play, go ahead and raise, make it like 15,000, try to take it down, punish the limpers, whatever you want to do. Uh, that's the second best play besides folding, in my opinion, because at least you have some type of fold equity, or perhaps you could build a pot now that you will then play in position post-flop and maybe be able to use your positional advantage to win pots where you don't flop anything. And you probably will flop nothing with ace-7 offsuit, which again is a junk hand. So I think the worst possible play here is to limp. So you're in the cutoff. You're kind of short stacked. I mean, not super short. You've got 29 blinds, but two players have limped early. So I would rather not waste a big blind trying to see a flop here, especially because it's it doesn't close the action. There's still the button. There's still the, the small blind and big blind yet to act. So just throw it away or raise, but don't limp whatever you do. Stanislav does limp from the cutoff and the button folds the small blind completes with five four suited i have no problem with that and now in the big blind it's anton morgenstern with nine tray off suit now in anton's shoes i think putting in a big raise is a good play now when you make this kind of semi-bluff pre-flop from the blinds you want to have your worst hands right uh, obviously, if he has like 9-8 suited or 9-7 off suit even, he's probably more profitable uh, checking it and seeing a flop, making a straight draw. Uh, you know, top pair might be good with 9-7, th those kinds of hands. If you have a medium strength hand, you should always check from the big blind after a few people limp in. If you have absolute garbage, like 9-tray, 10-deuce, Jack four, like these really bad, unsuited, one big, one small type of hands, you should usually check and sometimes use it as a semi-bluff. And the reason why you want to occasionally semi-bluff raise is because you don't want every time you raise from the big blind to be a premium hand. You have to have some bluffs in there, right? You don't want to always have a monster when you raise the limpers because then they can always just fold and it's too easy for them to play perfectly against you. 
So you need to mix in a few bluffs. I have certain combos in my in my mind that I think, well, if they all limp and I have this garbage hand, say a black 10 and a red deuce, and I'll know this before I look at my cards. If it happens to be that this time, I'm going to raise. If it's not, I'm just going to check. And that kind of approximates how often I need to have those junk hands. I have two or three combos in my head that if I happen to see when I peek down, I'm going to raise just as I would with pocket aces, pocket kings, ace king, you know, premiums. So uh, I have no problem with Morgenstern checking as he does here, but I did want to point out that it's okay to raise and try to win those limbs pre-flop once in a while with garbage like nine tray. All right, so uh, we have five-way action, 18,000 in the middle, and the flop comes. King of clubs, 10 of clubs, deuce of spades. One of the best flops for Gurgle Veros. Uh, he's got the ace, seven of clubs. So he's got a flush draw, an overcard, backdoor straight draw. Uh, so he's got a lot going on. Backdoor royal flush draw, right? That's a good flop for him. So, uh, but he has four opponents and he's only got ace high right now. So he decides to check. Well, first, um, Derniger, who is the player in the, uh, the, the German player in the small blind, uh, he checks. And then uh, the big blind, Anton Morgenstern, checks. And so now the action's on Gurgly with the uh, flush draw and he decides to check as well. I have no problem with that. Sean Deeb next to act, who has flopped two pair. Remember, he had king 10 offsuit, and now the flop has come king of clubs, 10 of clubs, deuce of spades. So Deeb with top two pair. He is not going to check. He's going to bet eight, uh, 9,000 into 18, so exactly half the pot. And the action folds all the way back to Gurgly Veros. So should he raise? Well, look. Deep bet into four opponents, which I think any time a player bets into four opponents, that player should be given more credit for having a hand than had he bet into one or two opponents. Most of us instinctively know that trying to bluff everybody out <laughs> is usually a bad idea. So in this spot, Deep will usually have at least a pair of kings, often two pair like he has now, possibly a set that limped in behind the first limper. Um, and at worst, he's going to have a draw, maybe like Queen Jack with the Queen of Clubs, something like that, right? So he's basically got a, a range that is weighted towards strength. And for that reason, I don't mind Gurgly's decision to just call. Uh, the case for check raising is that you might be able to get Sean to eventually fold a pair of kings. Uh, you do close the action by calling, and you know that the, you'll have one opponent regardless of whether you call or raise. Tangling with Deeb here, uh, who has, by the way, been playing about 60 to 70% of all the hands, V-pipping, uh, is okay if you want to try to punish the fact that he's been you know, taking liberties, getting out of line, basically exploiting the fact that most of his opponents are amateurs. Uh, that's fine, but I think under the circumstances, I prefer... Just calling, try to make that flush, and then hope that Deeb will try to represent it. You also may be able to win with a pair of aces, so uh, you could have up to 12 outs in this spot, although you cannot count on your aces being live, but you know 
any club gives you the nuts. Well, um, obviously, the deuce of clubs pairs the board, so that would not necessarily give you the nuts, but you would still have a very strong hand with your club flush in that case. So uh, just call and see what happens next. The pot is now 36,000. We are heads up against one of the best players in the world, and we have a flush draw <laughs> with our ace of clubs, seven of clubs on king, 10, deuce, uh, 36K in the pot, and the turn comes the tray of diamonds. So our board is now king, 10, deuce, tray with two clubs. And I think this is a spot where Veros can sometimes lead out, maybe look like he just made something, or maybe he slow played on the flop. Uh, it might confuse Deeb when Deeb has just one pair, and then that would allow us to set the price for seeing the river. I mean, your main goal in this spot is to see the river because we're trying to make this flush. And I've seen even really good players. I did this once against Alex Rocha at the World Series of Poker. Now, he's one of the best players I've ever, I've ever faced. He's very, very tough, a really super strong opponent. I just let out on the turn uh, as a, a defensive bet, a, a blocking bet, whatever you want to call it. But my reason for doing so was that I had a flush draw and I didn't want to check and have him bet too much for me to continue or to have to pay too dearly to see that river. So betting small kind of puts the handcuffs on on some players because they like to try to keep the pot smaller and they're, they don't really know what that bet means. Now, I need to also lead out sometimes when I have a monster uh, so that it's not always a semi-bluff trying to set the price to see the river, right? But I do that, so I don't worry about uh, occasionally doing it with a semi-bluffing hand as well. So I think that's what Gurgly might want to try here uh, because who knows how much Deeb will bet if we check. So instead he does check and Deeb decides to put in 21,000. So he's betting 21K into 36K, just one notch over half the pot and offering about 2.5 to 1 on a call. So what should Gurgly Veros do here? He's got one card to come. He's got a flush draw against a very aggressive, very tough, world-class opponent. And he decides to fold. Wow. Uh, the commentator for this hand, which was, I believe, Brett Hanks, originally said he has to call. And then when he folded, he said, I agree with the fold. He made a good fold. So I guess even the commentators at that point were confused about what happened in this hand. We very seldom see players who are priced out have the discipline to throw their hands away. It just doesn't happen that much. Most people would say, well, you know, maybe my aces are live. So then I have more than 20% equity in this hand. Also, maybe I can bluff if I don't get there on the river. Uh, maybe I can get paid if I do get there on the river to make up for it. The implied odds theory, which is always a kind of a dangerous road to go down because you actually don't know how Deeb will react if a club hits on the river. You cannot count on winning a lot of chips uh, if you happen to get lucky enough to make your hand. So uh, I believe under these circumstances, Gurgly Veros did the right thing and folded, folded his hand. 
but it does kind of demonstrate why it sucks to be out of position against Sean Deeb. A lesser player might not have bet the turn at all. Uh, of course, Deeb has two pairs, so it's easier for him to bet. But he bet enough to price us out. And then we can either make a bad call and see the river and overpay to see that river. Or we can make a disciplined fold and never know if we could have won chips in this hand. All we really had to do is fold pre-flop. If you are sitting at a table to the right of Sean Deeb, my best advice, and this is free advice, fold a seven of clubs under the gun. A little while later, at the same table, still at the same blinds though, uh, so it wasn't that much longer after that, maybe like 40 minutes or so, uh, same blinds, uh, two folds to a German player named Rene Mueller. He is a recreational player with very, very little in the way of caches, and he's in the hijack with pocket fives. Blinds are 1,500, 3,000 still. He makes it 7,000 with 200K behind. Folds all the way around to Sean Deeb in the big blind with Queen Jack offsuit. And I, I think it's a pretty clear defend from Sean's perspective. I mean, you could three bet this, but I don't really like to do that because I just think the hand plays perfectly fine post-flop. There's no reason to turn it into seven deuce with a big... Uh, Re-raise here. Also, the, the raise came from early middle position. So, particularly with such a novice opponent, it almost definitely means a relatively strong hand. I think fives might be close to the bottom of this player's range for opening at a full table. So, I think for all those reasons, it's best for Deeb to just call and see the flop out of position with Queen Jack. Uh, at this point, Deeb has uh, over 400,000 in chips. There is 18,500 in the pot, and the flop comes Ace of Diamonds, Tray of Clubs, and Deuce of Diamonds. Uh, Deeb checks to the Razor, as he will always do, about 100% of the time in this spot, and Mueller fires out 10,500 into the 18,500 pot. Uh, this bet is on the large side. I don't really know why Mueller decided to go so big with it. I think uh, a very small bet will often get the job done here. Maybe like 6000 7000 Totally fine to kind of, as we used to say, down bet. Although I've noticed that that, uh, <laughs> that terminology is basically old school at this point. Uh, he doesn't really have much. He's got a gut shot. He's got a pair and a gut shot, but it's really a question of does Deeb have an ace or not? And most of the time, the small bet will take it down when Deeb has nothing, I think. Uh, Mueller bets 10,005 into 18,005, and then proving every single part of my theory wrong, Deeb check raises with nothing to 29,000, so almost 3x the original bet, a pretty standard check raising size but certainly not a check raising type of hand. I mean, okay, so let's look at what Deeb actually has. He's got the queen of clubs, jack of diamonds on ace, tray, deuce with two diamonds. So he's got backdoor flush draw to the jack and some nebulous straight possibilities if it comes exactly king 10. So he really has nothing here, but he's just making a bet that Mueller 
will have hand with which he cannot continue often enough to make this check raise profitable. This would include hands like pocket kings, pocket queens that might want to just get out of the way. I, I think any hand that is not at least a pair of aces is going to suffer from this check raise a lot. So that's what makes it such a brilliant play. And also perhaps Deeb correctly surmised from the, the larger sizing on the flop, it's possible that Deeb figured out that this player would have made a smaller bet if he had an ace. He's really desperately trying to end the hand now with this larger bet. So, you know, who knows? Uh, Deeb is way better at poker than I'll, than I'll ever be. <laughs> and that's uh, not debatable. So perhaps he saw something that, that I can't see uh, that caused him to make this play. Uh, overall, I think when you check raise on a flop like this one, you want to have more equity. You want to be able to make a straight with certain turn cards. Um, maybe uh, something like King Jack with the King of Diamonds. So you could pick up the nut flush draw on the turn if it comes another diamond. And you also block a lot of your opponent's uh, continuing range with uh, flush draws that he might have. So all of that to say, I believe that Deeb is making this play here in this situation because he perceives something about his opponent. Number one, it's clear that Sean has uh, a substantial skill edge over this opponent, as he does against almost all of his opponents not just in this tournament, but in every tournament. So that's one thing that might make him want to make an above-the-rim type of non-standard play like this one. Number two, he may have picked up on a tell of some kind, not really sure what that would have been, but letting him know that his opponent isn't particularly strong here on this flop. And it could just be something as simple as the sizing that I mentioned a moment ago, or it could be something else, something physical or something about his breathing, whatever the case may be. Uh, Sean decided to go for it here and check raise with uh, queen high on the ace tray deuce board. So Mueller, who has uh, just a pair of fives and a gut shot here, probably should just throw his hand away. I think uh, you're really hoping that you hit a five or maybe a four. And even then, if you hit a five on the turn and you bink the set, you have to worry that Deeb flopped the nuts with 5-4. So, I don't know. It just feels like a mistake to even bet this flop in the first place. Why not just check it back? You've got a pair. You've got a gut shot. And then you don't have to get blown off your hand or make a call that you're just still not going to know where you stand. So, uh, Mueller is in a really tough spot here on this check raise and decides to make the call. I think that's a mistake, although as we know, as the cards lay... He actually was ahead. It, it seems like a, a bad call to me. Um, it's not a bad turn, though. With 76500 in the pot, the turn comes the Four of Clubs, which is just the most beautiful card that uh, Mr. Rene Mueller ever saw in his young poker career. And Deeb continues the aggression, firing 37000 into the 76500 pot, basically half the pot bet. And now Mueller, who's sitting there with the straight, uh, he does have to worry about the very, very unlikely possibility mm -hmm. that Deeb has the higher straight with 6-5. But I think that we're just supposed to lose a lot of chips when that's the case. Uh, he could also be a little concerned that Deeb could have a flush draw. But even against a flush draw, the straight is doing so well. Uh, I think that he should just call here 
and hope to not see the board pair or a diamond on the river. The chances of those things happening are so much slimmer than the possibility that Deeb is bluffing. <laughs> Deeb bluffs a lot, and at this table, he's been bluffing a lot, a lot. So you're better off just keeping him on the hook and hope that he fires again on the river. Now, if it comes a diamond or if the board pairs, you may have a tough decision to make, and I'm not sure which decision I would make in Mueller's case, but I think that raising here is a pretty clear mistake because although you protect your, your hand, you don't allow Deeb to keep bluffing. Generally, you want to give your opponents difficult decisions. And to me, that means calling here and let Deeb decide whether or not he wants to fire another shell on the river or check give up. So if we raise, he is going to know that he can give up when he's bluffing. So just call and try to reel him in one more time on the river. And also you can secretly hope that it's not a diamond because that does give you a pretty tough decision. Instead, Mueller shoves, which is a pretty clear mistake for like 170,000 more. And that's, yeah, that's just no good. Uh, Deeb folds instantly. And one thing I really love about Sean Deeb and the way he plays poker is when he's bluffing and somebody raises, he doesn't Hollywood, he doesn't take any more time than he needs to. He understands that the real value at a table like this one is getting in as many hands versus these guys as humanly possible. So he just snap folds, insta folds, and then we move on to the next hand. So I guess points for uh, Mueller there, but I have to wonder, could he have made more on this hand by continuing the slow play? Well, that'll do it for this episode. Please follow me on Twitter at Clayton Comic, and please do take the time to write a nice, happy five-star review for us and our podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.